0: Welcome, everyone. For today's show, we'll talk about Marvel's Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., a Batman book ending soon, the next game in the Arkham series, the 50th anniversary of Doctor Who, Daleks in the Water, General Zod makes his demands to the world, Browncoats vs. Fox, DCUO, and of course, our streaming television season of the week. This is one of those big episodes I warned you about. Welcome to Geek Briefs. Let's get started. Up first, let's talk about Marvel's Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. I first heard about the ABC pilot order for the Marvel television series back in August last year. Filming for the Joss Whedon-directed Marvel's Agent of S.H.I.E.L.D. pilot began back in mid-January. The script was co-written by Whedon, his brother Jed, and Jed's wife, Marissa Tantcher They previously collaborated on Dr. Horrible's Scene blog. It's expected that Jed and Marissa will be the actual showrunners, with Whedon adding his influence to story development. Jeffrey Bell from Angel and Alias fame, and Jeff Loeb of Smallville Lost in Heroes will be executive producers. SHIELD is meant to be autonomous to the Marvel film storylines, but will be peppered with bits and pieces of the Marvel Universe once the series has found its own equilibrium. One of those pieces is a recognizable face from the Marvel Studios fan universe, Agent Colson played by Clark Gregg. Now, given Colson's fate at the end of the Avengers movie, it'll be interesting to see how they validate his reappearance in the Marvel Universe. Other casting announcements have included Ming-Na Wen as Agent Melinda May. You may recognize her as the voices of Disney's Mulan, Lisa Wu from the Spawn series, Detective Ellen Yin in The Batman, and recently I saw her as Senator Wen in Eureka. J. August Richards, a Whedon alum who played Charles Gunn in the television series Angel, is confirmed to have a role in the pilot. By the way, fans of Richards can also look forward to seeing him in another comic book-inspired television show in the coming weeks. He's going to be on the April 24th episode of The CW's Arrow, playing a character called Mr. Blank. S.H.I.E.L.D. is expected to be a part of ABC's 2013-2014 fall schedule. However, the schedule won't be announced till Tuesday, May 14th it has been rumored that they may possibly get picked up even earlier than that but we'll just have to wait and see now okay this could be considered spoilers but since it's almost a year since the avengers movie ah screw it okay um i'm gonna go on a slight tangent uh let me say this now i liked clark Gregg's character in the marvel films i adored the hulk he was done right in the avengers i dig tony stark's snarkiness avengers overall was a very fun popcorn movie But I was epically taken out of the film when Whedon basically pulled a Whedon on Coulson's character. And for those that don't know what I'm talking about, what I call a Whedon is the use of a character death to cause emotional upheaval in the audience or to get a plot moving when the storyline has been painted into a corner. I see it as a cheap tactic that insults the intelligence of his audience, and it's used far too often in many of Wayne's projects, to the point that death is desensitized. Audiences don't have to be told what to feel. And when Coulson's death happened in my theater, there were actually boos. People booed, and I heard one person in front of me say, told you, and another said, I called it. Now, how horrible is that? I can understand when a writer has a formula that's their staple, that they're actually known for, but to use death to the point that no one feels like they can invest in a story is really sad. Okay, (laughs) that rant's over with. Um, I'm going to climb off my soapbox. And even saying that, even airing out my issues with Wing's use of death, he does have an excellent grasp on secondary characters and witty dialogue, so long as he's not pushing the witty. A prime example is a character who has only one good eye saying in one of his shows, Hey, party in my eye socket, and everyone's invited. I can't make this up. There's no way. he It was actually that bad, and he actually did say that. Even with the negatives I've voiced, I'm optimistic. There's a good chance that this could be an, a quality series. And I'm interested to see how Coulson plays in all this and how the ensemble works together. Only time will tell. I don't know how many of you are reading Batman Incorporated, but there was a serious plot development in Issue 8 that will have lasting effects on all the Bat Family titles. I started reading at Issue 6, and I really enjoyed the push and pull between Talia al Ghul and Batman with their son Damian Wayne in the middle of it. I'd kept my nose out of the uh, spoilers on the internet and was one of the rare few surprised by what happened in Issue 8. Batman Incorporated is the first time I've read a story with Damian Wayne as Robin, and I have to say I really like him. He's spunky, a little love-starved, a bit crusty, but he has a soft gooey center. You just have to look at his collection of pets to realize it. I mean, he saved a cow from a slaughterhouse and named it Bat-Cow. How flipping adorable is that? But after saying that, there has been a development with the book. Grant Morrison had previously announced his departure from the series, And rather than continue Batman Incorporated without him, DC Comics has decided to end the series with issue 13. The news comes as little surprise. Morrison used the title to tell the tale of Batman's international team of heroes that he began back in 2010. The first arc ended in December 2011, following the New 52 relaunch, with the second volume debuting in May of last year. According to the solicits, the final issue will sport a variant cover by Morrison himself. My only hope is that they attempt to wrap up the storyline concerning Talia and Batman by then. Grant Morrison no doubt has an end planned for his arc, but I'd hate for there to be any loose ends. Batman Incorporated number 13 will go on sale July 14th. It was announced last week that Batman Arkham Origins will be available worldwide on October 25th this year. Arkham Origins is the prequel to the amazing, critically acclaimed Batman Arkham Asylum and Batman Arkham City games that were developed by Rocksteady back in 2009 and 2011. It might come as a surprise to some Arkham fans that the series developer Rocksteady Studios will not be involved in Origins. Instead, the publisher has decided to go in-house with a studio in Montreal. In this Arkham series prequel, the story is set years before Arkham Asylum and Arkham City. Black Mask has put a price on Batman's head, and eight of the most deadly assassins in the DC Universe have come to Gotham, on Christmas Eve no less, to kill the Bat. From everything I've read, the origin story seems to be very much inspired by Batman Year One and Legends of the Dark Knight. In fact, gamers will play as a young and unrefined Batman while he faces a defining moment in his early career as a crime fighter. As the story unfolds, Batman will meet many important characters for the first time and forge key relationships. Half of Arkham Origins' world map is actually a past version of the same environment that we saw in Arkham City, which is now called Old Gotham. So we'll be in areas which will include Park Row, a not yet flooded Amusement Mile, the Bowery, the Industrial District, and Sheldon Park, which will replace the whole Wonder City, Wonder Tower area from Arkham City. Across the bridge, Batman can explore the other half of the map, New Gotham, a classier area where most of the skyscrapers are located. The Batwing will figure into story sequences and act as a universe-appropriate form of fast travel, but we won't be able to control it directly. Think of it like the flight paths used in World of Warcraft. Exploration will not always be simple. In the city, there will be towers that emit a jamming signal, which prevent the Batwing from flying into the area, so there will be no fast travel in certain areas until those towers are disabled and those jamming towers will also halt Batman's sensors from placing points of interest on the map. Just as in Arkham Asylum and Arkham City, there will be several side quests in Origins. The Crime and Progress side missions, when completed, will provide bonus points and increase your status with the GCPD. The Most Wanted system gives players a chance to go after villains outside the core Assassin's storyline and will offer new upgrades. I'm excited to see how this game turns out. One of the things I love about the Arkham game series is the number of Easter eggs and story homages scattered throughout the game. Hopefully Warner Brothers Montreal will be able to maintain the game mechanics we expect with the quality storytelling the Arkham series is known for. And I just wanted to make the briefest comment about the Doctor Who 50th anniversary. There's been at least one confirmed past Doctor and companion to return for the 50th anniversary Doctor Who episode this year. But unfortunately, Christopher Eccleson, the ninth incarnation of the Time Lord, has turned down the chance to return to the long-running sci-fi series. A BBC spokeswoman said Eccleson met with Stephen Moffat, the current showrunner of Doctor Who, a couple of times, but after careful thought, he decided not to be in the episode. Even though we may not see a return of Eccleson's Doctor, That doesn't mean that we might not see him at all. There are a number of rumors going around that the show bosses are planning to use old footage of previous doctors for the anniversary episode. Which isn't all that unusual, given that Matt Smith's first episode, The Eleventh Hour, showed a quick flashing montage of past doctors using old footage. I'm a little disappointed by this. Eccleston was the first time we'd seen The Doctor on the screen since Paul McGann's eighth incarnation of The Doctor in the 1996 Fox TV movie. And before that, Sylvester McCoy's tenure as The Seventh Doctor ended in 1989 when the show actually went officially on hiatus. My hope is, if they do use past footage to represent the past Doctors, that they'll at least give them more than a blink and you'll miss a cameo. Now away from the sad news and onto the amazing, a homicidal alien has been found in a pond. You think I'm joking, don't you? The telegraph reported volunteers enlisted to clean a local pond in Hampshire found a Dalek from Doctor Who submerged in a pond. The group had already fished out an old foosball table and a skateboard when one of the volunteers noticed a Dalek head slowly rising to the surface. After the discovery, volunteers made a thorough search of the pond and verified there were definitely no other alien remnants. The volunteers have all agreed to keep the exact location of the pond under wraps for fear of fans descending on the location for other Dalek parts. No one really knows how the prop found its way there, but the BBC often took Daleks out on location for filming, and they did travel to Hampshire at least once when Colin Baker played the sixth incarnation of the Time Lord back in the 1980s. Speaking of alien threats, right before I began recording this evening, we received a message letting us know we're not alone. Now, I do have to warn you that the audio quality is not its best. I am you. My name is General Zod. <laughs> sometime your world has sheltered one of my citizens i request that you return this individual to my custody to callo i say this surrender within 24 hours or watch this world suffer the consequences for those that haven't been watching manasteel.com there's been some strange goings on at the site First, when we went to the site, all you could see was static, but slowly, as time went on, an image began to reveal itself on the screen. And what we saw was General Zod's shield emblem, followed by a distorted message you just heard. If you want to see the video for yourself, you can go to the Geek Brief's Twitter and Facebook pages, or check out the video at ManofSteel.com. But this is not the only bit of viral marketing that we've seen for the Man of Steel. A website called the Deep Space Radio Wave Project surfaced in December 2012, asking people to decode a series of transmissions from Antarctica that were originally mistaken to be deep space radio signals. On April 13th, the site became active again, requesting help in decoding a new transmission believed to be an extension of the language decoded last year. And now, a new billboard has shown up in Culver City with a Kryptonian inscription. Using the established Kryptonian number system shown on the Deep Space Radio Wave Project site, the billboard translates to an Internet IP address of 168.161.242.137, at which the website www.iwillfindhim.com is being hosted. A new Kryptonian countdown has begun at this site. Translated, the deadline for this 48-hour countdown equates to approximately 7.18 p.m. Central Standard Time on Tuesday, April 16th. I'm seriously getting juiced about this countdown. Many believe it will be the third trailer for The Man of Steel, which has been reported to clock in at 3 minutes and 8 seconds, and contains scenes that may cause a child brief anxiety, or fear, and restrained portrayals of non-graphic violence. Yes! I cannot wait for this. I love viral marketing. And for those of you who are fans of Firefly and that make Jane hats, watch out. Fox is coming for you. As if Firefly fans didn't hate the Fox network enough, it seems Fox has cracked a hornet's nest open over fan-made Jane Cobb hats by sending out cease-and-desist notices to browncoats who make them. Let me get this out of the way first. Fox owns the Joss Whedon series Firefly, and as the rights holder, they are allowed to do whatever they want to do with it. If they want to license Firefly toilet paper with Niska and Saffron's likenesses on it, they have the right to do so. If they want to make Reaver aftershave, they can do that too. That being said, I can understand some of the aggravation this story has caused. A seller of Firefly fan items commented on their Facebook about a recent situation concerning fan-made hats. Apparently Fox have started sending out cease and desist letters to independent craft and fan sellers specifically those that have been making and selling jane hats for the past ten plus years with no problem these are people that are not huge manufacturers. They don't have a factory shooting out a hundred hats an hour. These are people that are most likely making a tiny bit of pocket money from their knitting, and then now, because of all this kerfuffle, they aren't even able to make that because Etsy has banned them due to this situation. Now, Etsy banning users without warning or explanation over what they consider copyright infringement is nothing new, but this specific situation seems to have a source. Ripple Junction obtained the rights to mass-produce the Jane Hat from Fox. Instantly, the Hat became a huge seller on sites like ThinkGeek, and that's when this annoying little chain reaction happened. You see, Ripple Junction and ThinkGeek have both said that they have absolutely no part in sending out the cease and desists. However... Someone reported these independent shops to Ripple Junction, and as an official license holder, by contract, they're obligated to report them. Fox Legal, doing their due diligence, sent EC the legal notifications. The closed shops are the ones specifically brought to the attention of Ripple Junction. The other cease and desist EC are issuing are being used to legally cover their posteriors. What's funny about this whole situation is that C&Ds have been sent out over ski caps. I mean, let's face it, the Jane Cobb hat used on Firefly was a knit ski cap. Now I know some of you naysayers are going to say that the cap is an original design that was specifically made for the show. But I'm gonna tell you something. When I was in high school, I went on a ski trip to uh, Devil's Head in Iowa. I can't remember if it was my senior trip or not, but I'm pretty sure it was around 95 or 96. While going through a knit craft store, my mom pointed out a tricolor hat that she thought looked warm. I didn't have a cap, so my mom and I picked it up for pretty much next to nothing. A few years later, I noticed the same hat on a certain sci-fi western TV show. My point I'm trying to get to is that it's not all that unique a design. Why send out the C&Ds to people for a design that was out before Firefly and only became popular in the brown coat community in the past 10 years? Now, there's been some slight silver lining that's been formed because of this whole situation coming to light. Think Geek has decided to donate the profits from all Jane Hat sales on their site to Can't Stop the Serenity, a brown coat charity that raises funds and awareness in support of Equality Now. The seller has said that, they'll continue to make that donation until they run out of stock. Also, I need to give major props to an Etsy seller called Craft Otaku for posting one of the most interesting Jane Hatt backstories that I've ever seen. It's way too long for me to read here, but if you want to check it out, there's a link to the story on the Geek Brief's Facebook page. Okay, originally when I was setting up the notes for today's episode, I was going to discuss the most recent announcements from DC Universe Online. Specifically, I was going to discuss DLC 7, which has been given the title Origin Crisis. I was also going to discuss Update 25. However, the notes are exceptionally extensive, and I think I would rather do it justice if I gave it its own special episode. So I've decided... uh, For this week and this week alone, I'm going to go ahead and separate the podcast into two podcasts and put them both out in one week. So we'll get two podcasts for the price of one. Honestly, I was just going to do the DCO this week, but because of all that news that just sort of flopped into my lap, especially the Man of Steel items, which I can't resist. I have to share with everyone. I think that's the best option. So, I'm going to skip these rather extensive notes that I put down because I could easily do an hour with these alone, and we're already into 20 minutes. And there's my phone. Let me go ahead and get that, and then we'll go ahead and do our streaming television season of the week. Sorry about that delay, folks. Welcome back. Now we're going to go ahead and do our streaming television season of the week, which happens to be Robot Chicken Season 1. Robot Chicken is the stop-motion comedy television series created and executive produced by Seth Green and Matthew Senrick, along with co-head writers Douglas Goldstein and Tom Root. It's currently on its sixth season, but Netflix currently has only Season 1. There are 20 episodes available with a total run time of 3 hours and 35 minutes. Robot Chicken is, to me, pop culture gold. It takes all those wonderful memories from when I was a kid, playing with Transformers and He-Man action figures, and watching Pee-Wee's Playhouse, and it flips it on its ear. Actually, for me to phrase it better, it reminds me of when, when you're a teenager, and you're goofing around with a friend's camera you come up with stupid little skits about ridiculous things like um, mesmerizing homicidal burritos or uh, what if catwoman was the she-male in the crying game i'm serious i i do think about these weird things from time to time and that's okay being a geek means that you kind of look at things from a skewed angle And uh, you find the humor in them. Because Robot Chicken has that randomness to it that only sketch comedy can provide. Add to that the amazing work that they're able to do with stop motion. And that randomness is art. Cool, groovy, sometimes pervy, but always fun art. A few of my favorite sketches uh, from this season, well, one of them was The Mongoose, Nature's Deadliest Assassin. Where you have like a Richard Attenborough voice, you know, doing the nature documentary thing, talking about how deadly the mongoose is. Finally, he gets into position on a hill and he pulls out his sniper rifle and he sets up his tripod and his little uh sights and he ends up shooting Kennedy. Another good one, a quick one, was when you had Santa Claus ringing a bell outside a department store doing a Monty Python going, bring out your dead. Or the Scarecrow from The Wizard of Oz, actually in the prison of Oz, and he gets shanked by somebody in the lunchroom. Actually, a really good one was the evil villain carpool, where you have four villains. You have Mumra from Thunder... Yeah, it's Mumrith from Thundercats, Skeletor from He Man, you have Lex Luthor, of course, from the DC Universe. And you have what I like to call kitchen towel or shower curtain Cobra Commander. That's when he was in that outfit where he didn't have the silver dome ish faceplate, but he actually had like this blue curtain and in his little uniform, which it looks sharp, admittedly. But it just he doesn't remind me of Cobra Commander unless he has that actual silver faceplate. Well, I think that's our show for today. The next streaming movie of the week is going to be Red State. It was directed by Kevin Smith and starred John Goodman, Stephen Root, Michael Parks, Kevin Pollock, and Anna Gunn. It's currently available on Netflix Instant Watch. If anyone wants to sit down and share your thoughts about the movie, or anything else for that matter, the email is geekbriefs at live.com. You can also contact the Geek Briefs studios at the Twitter account at Geek Briefs or the Geek Briefs Facebook page. I'll see you next time. Thanks for listening.